Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my friend Greg Hancock, who without question has no equivalence, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we explore the freakish and terrifying topic of equivalent models, particularly as they arise within the SEM. Along the way, we also discuss rinsing toes, palindromes, anagrams, being a tad unquiet, under-teaching, double-secret probation, scary cousins, sausage makers, tribbles, empty beer bottles, hardcore history, a severely hungover John Stuart Mill, the walk of shame, and expecto patronum. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm sorry that I'm late this morning. I have an excuse, but I'm sorry that I'm late. I would be more worried about that if I weren't more late myself and you just didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, I logged in late and like you're not even logged in yet. That's because I got so disgusted with your lack of respect for timelines that I stormed out onto the back deck with a cup of coffee and sat and watched a squirrel try to get into my squirrel-proof bird feeder. <laughs> Two reasons I'm late. One is I had to rinse my toes. <laughs> I was feeding... Well, you've met Gus. You know Gus, our dog. Gus and I know each other on an intimate basis. Gus has licked you in ways that I think make you married in 14 <laughs> countries. When I feed Gus in the morning, as I scoop out his food, when I'm wearing flip-flops, he drools, and sometimes my foot is in a bad location, so he drooled just right through my flip-flops and my toes. Thing two, though, is I had to get something off the printer that I wanted to share with you, but the printer was malfunctioning. I don't think you know this about me. I like words, and I even collect words. I have things that send me words each day and, you know, words I might not ordinarily use. I like to learn new words, and I keep files of words that I think are really cool. I also just like language a lot. So, for example, if I said to you, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama, you would know what that is, right? Yes. That's the part where you... Say what it is. You asked me a question and I answered. <laughs> yes, That did. would be a palindrome. In that one, very, very cool, right? You read it from left to right, right to left. A couple of palindromes that I like besides that one. I don't know. Do you have any favorites, though? 6116. <laughs> I don't know any palindromes, so I just made that up. I can give some others of my favorites. Two, one, two. We can do an episode on this if you would like. That's really good. That's really good. <laughs> I actually don't know a single palindrome. I like this one. Do geese see God? That's kind of cool. Never odd or even. I like that one. One that made me think of you from something you said really early on in the podcast. Yo, banana boy. <laughs> Do you know why that made me think of you? I, because I don't listen to anything we ever record? No, I have no idea. Because on your list of rules, one is that you can't leave a banana peel in your garbage can. Oh, that's totally true. Yeah. <laughs> so that made me think of you. I like anagrams a lot. Anagrams rearrange the letters and you can create some other thing. We had in one of the end parts of an episode that quantitude can be rearranged into quaint duet. I forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> but it can also be rearranged into tad unquiet. And I don't know if I feel as positively oh. about that one. Yeah. <laughs> Let me share with you one of my favorite. You can take 6116 and make it 1616. Yeah, I don't know any anagrams either. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to be part of this conversation, but... That's okay. That's All right. okay. I didn't really expect you'd contribute a lot. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> Why should today be different than any other day? With regard to the presidential election in the U.S. recently, here is one sentence that I think everybody can agree on. Our feeling about the security of the election results can be summed up in one sentence. The voting machines had been fixed. Oh. What does that mean to you? I didn't know this was going to be my doctoral exams this morning. <laughs> I would have put on pants at least if I had expected this. I will go with they were repaired. I like that one because you got one word that can actually mean the exact opposite of what's going on. But here's the one that I think is most relevant for us right now. These are words, anagrams, that if you rearrange the letters, they can mean the opposite. Okay. So if I take the letters in the word united, I can rearrange them. Do you know what I'm going to come up with? Dinte. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah, if you rearrange the letters in united, you get untied. Mm-hmm. That's kind of nice. If you rearrange the letters in honestly, you get on the sly. Oh. I love stuff like this, where you can take the basic building blocks of something and arrange them differently and get something that means something entirely different. So help me out here, as usual, mm-hmm. engaging, entertaining, unclear where this is going. <laughs> I think that's the hallmark of what we do. <laughs> Could we put that on a coffee mug, <laughs> <Is> too? That- <laughs> Yeah, so the last one that I'd mentioned where you can actually take fundamental building blocks that make up one word and and rearrange them, or as we might say more generically, connect them differently and come up with something that means something that is entirely different, if not actually the opposite, is very, very symbolic of some of the things that we run into in our world of not just data analysis, but thinking about models in particular. And I think that's probably a topic that is grossly overlooked in our world, this whole idea of whether it's alternative or equivalent models. It seems like something that really ought to be made more explicit. Like everything in life, one of the greatest strengths in the SEM is also absolutely one of its greatest weaknesses. It goes hand in hand, and it is distinguishing a point of confusion that often arises at all levels of student and grants and papers as well is conflating alternative models with equivalent models. Mm-hmm. those are fundamentally different and something that would be fun to talk about because the former alternative mm-hmm. models is, I think, one of the biggest advantages of the SEM. The equivalent models, if you really drill into it, there are some days when I think, I'm never going to do an SEM again. I'm out. This yep. is a fool's errand. We're all just tricking ourselves by equations and path diagrams and robust corrected standard errors. And as we'll see as we drill into this a bit more is your precious little model is one of maybe a couple hundred mm-hmm. that all fit exactly the same. So let's take a running start at that. You brought up the first thing, which has to do with alternative models. How do you present alternative models? How do you think about alternative models when you're teaching this? Because I I have to confess, I under-teach this topic, which is a polite way of saying I barely do it at all. I was going to (laughs) say, I like that. I'm going to have to remember that under-teach. That was kind of like I was over-served last night. Yeah, (laughs) It wasn't my fault. Yes, it wasn't me. The bartender kept bringing me things every time I raised my hand and said, Barkeep! 
So I underteach. I gotta tell you, I underteach this to the point of zero. Mm-hmm. But as we've established before, we don't make a lot of money in academia and we have to derive the things that give us fulfillment elsewhere. And one of those is being in a student dissertation meeting and asking a question about something that you should have covered in class but didn't, and then express disappointment when the student is not able to respond to it. We've touched on alternative models in a number of prior episodes. We talked about model-based reasoning. We talked about regression versus SEM. I'm sure there are other things that I'm just repressing. In my mind, this is like our third episode because I'm just so appalled at the things that come out of my mouth and how they sound. In a nutshell, an alternative model, as I think about it, is take whatever your whiteboard problem is, Mm -hmm. take your Sharpie, walk up to the whiteboard, mark in your measured variables, and then the whiteboard problem is, all right, let's go nuts here. Mm -hmm. How are you going to draw circles and single-headed arrows and double-headed arrows? And how are you going to build a hypothesized mechanism that gave rise to your observed data? And how are we going to empirically adjudicate that in some principled and informed way? That's the cornerstone of SEM. And so an alternative model is saying, all right, you believe these mediating mechanisms exist where you have parental alcoholism to stressful life events to anxiety to delinquent peer associations to adolescent substance use. That's one model, and you draw that up. Mm -hmm. An alternative model is, well, maybe I move this over here and this over here and this over here, and that could be another theoretical expression of how that parental alcoholism risk goes. And I'm going to estimate that and then compare that in some way to the prior model. So it's an alternative representation. I think of it as rearranging the variables or rearranging the arrows in some theoretically guided way. Mm -hmm. And then it gives you some alternative representation of your model. When you do that, it gets me thinking about, well, to what are we comparing our models? And I think that's an interesting thing to think about when you're doing your own work. So say you just Mm -hmm. have a hypothesized model, all right? So we have a mediating mechanism that begins with the Hancock toxic masculinity scale. And Mm -hmm. how does that radiate through some mediating pathway? So we're just going to call that model one, all right? Mm -hmm. So we get a chi-square test statistic. Well, that's actually a comparison of that model to another model. Right. And that other model is saturated model. Everything gets a mean, everything gets a variance, everything gets a covariance. And we do a likelihood ratio test and we compare the fit of model A to the saturated model. Well, we also get goodness fit indices. TLI, CFI, IFI, there are 118.3 of them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a comparison of your model to a baseline model. Now, different programs use different baseline models, but the classic one is Everything gets a mean, everything gets a variance, but there are no covariances. Right. That's like picking on the kid least likely to give you a fight, which is I'm going to see the improvement in model fit when I don't allow any measured variable to correlate with any other measured variable. <laughs> All hands tied behind your exactly. back. Exactly. Come on, let's go. A dubious win at best. Uh-huh. All right, Uh so that's the baseline model. And then we have a nested model. So Mm -hmm. we have your mediation model, and we add three parameters to it. And one model is nested in the other, and we get a likelihood ratio test. 
Mm-hmm. And we think about this as what do you get for your three bucks, right? If you're going to add three parameters, that's going to cost you three degrees of freedom. Is it worth it? If you add those three, is your model significantly improved? And if it is, you say, ah, that's worth that three bucks. And if it's not, you say, ah, maybe not. All right, so it's nested. Kind of how I sometimes think about a classic alternative model is you have some expression that is not nested, right? So you can't get from one to another by imposing restrictions or removing restrictions. And so we can't use a likelihood ratio test for various reasons. And instead, we look at things like information criteria or other kinds of fit measures. I would consider all of those in the realm of alternative models. So I like the way that you describe these things and the way I think about it for the most part and the way I teach it for the most part has to do with parameter subsets when I talk about nesting. You know, as you said, we can define one model sort of as a special case of another by imposing constraints or if we can release constraints on another model. But that's not the only way to think about these. And in fact, it's probably somewhat imprecise to think about them that way. And there's a way that I prefer to think about them, although to be fair, I don't teach them this way. Is this like double secret probation? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really important, but you're not going to tell anybody? Delta's already on probation. Oh. Then as of this moment, they're on double secret probation. Don't tell my students. <laughs> There's different language that gets used in all of this. One way I like to think about this is that every model is associated with a family of probability distributions. So even something like simple regression kind of model, imagine all the different possible values for the slope, all the different possible values for residual variance, all the different possible values for the variance of an X predictor. What those do is those define all the different possible distributions that we can have for X and Y. And one way to think about a model then is all the possible probability distributions that it can generate. If I go in and I fix the path from x to y to a numerical value, whether it's zero or something else, then what I have just done is I have taken all the possible probability distributions that the original model had, and I have now restricted myself to a subset of those, the subset where there's no covariance between x and y. Basically, I've shut off their mechanism or I have fixed it to a particular value. So one way to think about alternative models has to do with the relation that they have in terms of the probability distributions that they generate. That means that all of the things that you talked about could be reframed. We could say, for example, that we have two models, one of which has a set of probability distributions that is a subset of another. Well, that's what we call a nested model or hierarchical relationship between those models. We might have two models that don't share probability distributions at all. So one person goes up to the board and draws one thing. Another person goes up and draws another thing. They have zero in common. That would be really bizarre, right? That's weird that they would have no probability distributions in common. You could also have what when we talk about non-nested models, which certainly includes the ones that don't overlap at all, we could have these partially overlapping sets of probability distributions where one model generates a whole bunch of probability distributions, another model generates a whole bunch of probability distributions, and they share some but one is not entirely contained within the other. And that's when we get this non-nested situation. And the language of nesting for me, or the language of hierarchical relations to me, is one that in my head is very wedded to sets of parameters. But it's really broader than sets of parameters. And the place where that's the clearest 
is in what you said about how we get a chi-square statistic associated with a given model. We're comparing this back to a saturated model, which the way I like to think about it is that all variables are connected with two-headed arrows to all other variables. And I might look at my model visually and say, well, my model isn't a special case of that in terms of parameter subsets. My model doesn't even have two-headed arrows. How could my model be a special case of that? That's where defining things distributionally is a little bit more freeing, right? That we don't have to think about things in terms of parameter subsets. So that's the way I think about it. But that's not, at least not the way I initially teach it to people. I initially teach it just in terms of list out all the parameters. Are all of these things contained in that? You're right. It's it's broader than that. This is one of those things of be careful for what you ask because you might just get it, right? How many mm-hmm. of you out there have gotten your notice of award from a grant and gone out to celebrate with your team and you all just sit there and struck silence because now you have to do it? And somebody is trying to remember whose idea it was to submit the application anyway. In that spirit, one of the greatest strengths of the SEM, unambiguously, Mm -hmm. is we can walk up to that board and we can draw in these single-headed errors, double-headed errors, circles, triangles in any way our heart desires mm-hmm. and we're not locked into certain structures or expressions as we are in other modeling frameworks we talked earlier about the multiple regression model that once you click on the dependent variable everything just populates automatically you have mm-hmm. no choice in the matter at all and as we all know it comes down to control hello hello oh, finally i get the remote everything's a control <laughs> issue And we have absolute control. And so one of the greatest strengths of the SEM is this notion that I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. And those are alternative models. And it's critical that we embrace these as we use these kinds of things in practice. But alternative models brings his cousin with him to the party. (laughs) And he's leaning over against the wall Mm -hmm. and he's got a beer and he's smoking inside when nobody else is smoking inside. And nobody wants to go up and really talk to him because he looks scary as hell. But nobody wants to ask him to leave because he's big and tattooed. Barry, you want to introduce me to your friends? Uh, yeah, this is Chris. We were in the Marines together. Great. <laughs> and that is equivalent models. Mm. And this is a real point of confusion in many, many different situations. And I myself will switch out these words by accident. Listeners aren't Mm going to know because we'll post-produce this episode. You and I have both reversed them, but I'm going to edit that out so that people don't (laughs) know that. So we appear really smooth and polished. You're smooth and polished and smart. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Audacity. Both you and I have paused and said, shook our head and then restated alternative models. And these are very, very easy to switch up. I think what we should do is get not a technical description because you get into the weeds pretty quickly and the weeds are cool, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of times the really cool stuff is in the weeds, but not today. Mm -hmm. Do you want to give a 30,000 foot description of what do we mean by an equivalent model and how does it differ from an alternative model? I can give it a shot at 30,000 feet. And one thing I can do is I can try to rely on what I have already said with regard to a model really representing a family of potential distributions. And let me use an example along the way. If I have a model that says X 
influences y influences z. If we think about all the different possible values that we could have for the parameters in that model, that defines a whole family of multivariate distributions. We could also have, as an example, a model where paths go from z to y to x. And we think about all the possible values that the parameters in that model could have, it defines the exact same set of distributions that we could have. So in that sense, we could define equivalent models as those that have identical families of distributions associated with them. Alternative models, on the other hand, are just other explanations we are entertaining. And those other explanations that we're entertaining might have probability distributions in common. They might have none in common. They are merely things that we consider to be theoretical competitors, whether or not they have this special relationship. And this reflects, I think, how you and I in a little different way maybe approach problems. I think about mine even more colloquial than that when mm -hmm. I'm thinking about it. It's exactly the same. And I love yours. I love that thinking about the distributions. But I think about things like the sausage maker. All right. <laughs> This is a slightly different, ever so slightly less technical. Exactly. It's just a little bit, a little bit different is, is think about a sausage maker. All right. So uh -huh. all of you think about your, a model, a model that you're proud of. All of us have a model that we're proud of, right? So think about your mm -hmm. model that you're proud of. It doesn't matter what it is. A path model, a factor model, a full SEM is just think about that in your mind's eye. All right. And think about all the parameters that are in that. There are factor loadings, mm -hmm. means, variances, residuals, covariances, regression coefficients, whatever defines the model. Gather them all together, pick them off the page, and put them in a row. Mm -hmm. That's your vector theta, all right? That's your mm -hmm. model. When you talk about your model, you're really talking about what lives in theta. These lambdas, these nus, these psi's, these betas and gammas, whatever it is lives in this vector theta. All right, that's yours. Nobody can take it mm -hmm. away from you. All right, that's your model. Then when you talk about what is your model, what is my model, it's what lives in theta. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take theta and we're going to put it into the sausage grinder. Picture sigma theta which is we're going to call a matrix-valued function. And let's do a CFA because I remember that one and I look really smart because I can just cough it up. <laughs> but don't ask me to give another one for any other model because I don't remember it. Oh, I'm oversharing again, aren't I? The matrix-valued function is lambda psi lambda prime plus theta. All right, so if you arrange your factor loadings and factor variances and covariances and residual variances in that way, it's going to give you a model-implied covariance matrix. That's the sausage maker. We're going to take your model, we're going to grind it down into this matrix-valued function, and out the end is going to be a model-implied covariance matrix. Now, this holds with means well. We'll ignore it here. Everything is the same. We'll just focus on the covariance matrix. An alternative model, as Greg is describing, and as I was trying to touch on a little bit earlier is a nested model may have one model where there's that theta vector that your model lives and another model that maybe has three fewer elements in it. You took out three mm -hmm. parameters and you're going to both run those through the sausage maker. You're going to get two different covariance matrices and you're in some way going to compare those to one another. Those are alternative models. An equivalent mm -hmm. model drives me freaking insane. <laughs> because you have model one that has a certain vector. Let's just call it theta one. Then model two is a different model and has a different vector theta. And you mm -hmm. run it through the sausage maker and you get the same damn covariance matrix. 
they are numerically equivalent. I like thinking about it in this way. Can you write a function that maps one vector theta onto a new vector theta that gives you distinctly different parameter vectors but gives you the same covariance matrix? And those are equivalent models. And so going back to your example, which I really love, X predicting Y predicting Z is one model. Z predicting Mm -hmm. Y predicting X is another model. And Y predicting X and Z are a third model. They are fundamentally distinct and unique with respect to theory, yet they are numerically isomorphic they all three result in precisely the same model implied covariance matrix and subsequently the same model fit, and they cannot be adjudicated between based on the numerical results of the model. That's right. The family of distributions that they imply are completely identical. This should strike the fear of God into you (laughs) because this scales up like Mm -hmm. nobody's business. There are not just one equivalent model, not just two equivalent models. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds sometimes of equivalent models. And so you start getting into this philosophy of science is, again, think about your favorite model and how that confirms your theory. That model only offers support if it also supports all the equivalent models that go along with it. Because every single one is numerically isomorphic to every single other one, and you got to deal with that. And there are a couple of different ways that you can come up with these equivalent models. Probably the quickest way is wait for reviewer two to tell you what they are. And Um. if you do, you know it's either me or Greg who wrote the review. So... Little tidbit from home. If somebody Uh asks about equivalent (laughs) models, it's probably one of the two of us. Which we neglected to include in our workshops or courses. (laughs) We don't teach about it. Precisely so we would have this in our pocket. In fairness to us, which is what's important here, is it's one of those things that you can write in a review without actually reading the manuscript. (laughs) I have a template. It's already in there. (laughs) I I have a review written that I can submit to almost any manuscript without Uh even reopening the Word document. Uh So option one is pretend it doesn't exist unless Greg Mm -hmm. reviews your manuscript and then you roll your eyes and you got to deal with it. I would like to think there are other options. Yeah, there are other options and they're really, really messy. That doesn't make them unimportant, but they're incredibly messy. So we talked about a model that has only three variables and we gave you three different ways to arrange those that would all be indistinguishable on the basis of fit. In fact, there are no data that you could gather ever that would help you to discern among those. And in fact, you would know that prior to even gathering data, that those are indistinguishable. And there are even more with just three variables. I mean, heck, once you start introducing latent variables, throwing factors in there, it's not just how you connect these variables, it's these other magical things that you bring in there that can also yield these equivalent models. So imagine that you could take a model and enumerate all the different ways that they could be connected. Imagine you have a model with eight variables or 12 variables or 30 variables. It is not uncommon for Patrick and me to see models that have 40, 50, 60 variables in them, right? Especially once we start getting indicators of latent factors. How many different ways can you connect a model with 60 variables and yield something that's equivalent? It's almost beyond comprehension. 
And so there are rules for doing this, rules that have been beautifully laid mm. out for ways to go through your model and say, ooh, I could connect these differently here, and I could connect these differently here. You can almost think of your model as consisting of these different neighborhoods. Within these different neighborhoods where variables are interplaying with each other, there might be different ways that you can connect those. And if you imagine all the different ways that you connect different parts of your model, combinatorially, this gets massive. And it gets even worse than that, because for as much of a hard time as I give you about your Star Trek weirdoness, as I watched all the Star Trek episodes <laughs> when I was a kid, and one of my favorite episodes of all time is The Trouble with Tribbles. 1,771,561. That's assuming one Tribble multiplying with an average litter of 10, producing a new generation every 12 hours over a period of three days. Oh my God. It's so funny because all they were were like uh -huh. just these little stuffed pillows and they're pretending uh -huh. like they're quivering and moving and things. But the gag in the episode is that they just keep reproducing. Uh -huh. And every time you open a cabinet or something, all the tribbles fall out. I do think about it as a trouble with tribbles issue because mm -hmm. you take these rules, which are profoundly clever. Some of the things that I am most impressed in our field, I stand in awe of the technical developments. Reading Michael Brown's 1984 British Journal paper is I just stand in awe of the creativity yep. of that. I'm in equal awe of cleverness, of like, wow, that is really creative. And some of these rules are really clever. The go-to citation on this is Lee and Hirschberger. To show mm -hmm. how long this stuff has been around is most of the work that was done on this was in the 80s and 90s. 1990. 90 was Lee and Hirschberger. They went off of some work by a, a woman named Stelzel. Stelzel 86, yeah. We will not drill into the details because that's not the point here. But Lee and Hirschberger develop what they call replacing rules. And they have this really clever way of saying, all right, draw out your model. And using various guidelines they have, you can develop three blocks. So there's mm -hmm. a preceding block, a focal block, a succeeding block. And there are ways that you identify these blocks. And then within the focal block, man, we're back on spring break again, right? It is like you can take single-headed arrows and make them double-headed arrows. You can take single-headed arrows and reverse them. You can take single-headed arrows and make them bidirectional arrows with an equality constraint. You go nuts. And within that focal block, in each of these changes, when you follow these replacement rules, results in an equivalent model. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but a lot of times when I've raised this in committee meetings or even in grant review, people will say, no, I know that there are alternative theoretical ways of thinking about it. It's like, no, no, mm -hmm. we are way past that. All right. This is not, oh, I understand there are other models of parenting that would dictate. No, your precious model, if we do Lee and Hirschberger, there are 80 models that give you the mm -hmm. same chi-square the same fit indices that numerically cannot be distinguished. And going back to the trouble with tribbles is you do the replacement rules and let's go ahead and just say we get one equivalent model. Well, now we can do the replacement rule on that for all the equivalent models that are equivalent to that model. And you do it again yep. and you do it again. And then you step back and say, remind me why I use structural equation <laughs> modeling. 
or really just about anything, right? That's the world that you and I live in, but a lot of different types of models have this exact same problem when you think about it more broadly in terms of the distributions that they generate. So this is a crazy, crazy headache. You would need a very, very large whiteboard to get all of those things written down. Now, to be fair, one of the reasons that you haven't written all of those down ahead of time, well, other than the fact that Patrick didn't teach you about it, uh, is that you probably ruled a lot of those out as not making any sense temporally. If it's very clear to me, in fact, maybe I even manipulated it such that X comes before Y and Y comes before Z, then it makes no sense to say that Z influences Y, which in turn influences X. So on some level, explicit or implicit, you might have ruled some of those out, and that's why they never made it to the whiteboard for you. But my guess is more often you hadn't thought about all of the different possibilities, even the ones that make sense, even the ones that don't violate whatever your logic or common sense might be. That brings me to two dimensions. One is freakish and one is terrifying. Mm -hmm. The freakish thing to get your head around is take your theta vector that has your model. Remember, all of us right now have one that's near and dear to us and sitting right in front of us, all right? And we have that theta vector. And we write some function to make that theta vector some other theta vector. And we do that using the replacement rules and we make regression coefficients correlated disturbances and we make X predicting Y instead Y predicting X, right? We really get in and and muck around with this theta and we get this function that maps it onto the new theta and we get two ideas identically fitting models in every way, shape, or form. The freakish thing is, of course, the parameter estimates are different. The standard errors are different. The critical ratios are different. The p-values are different. The multiple Mm -hmm. r-squared values are different. Every aspect of the model can change in these predictable and understandable ways, but things Mm -hmm. that were significant become non-significant. Things that were explanatory are non-explanatory. All of these things change, but the numerical fit of the model is identical. Mm -hmm. But then the terrifying kind of thing, and it's kind of alluding to what you were just talking about, is we can reduce the space of these equivalent models, right? Because we're not going to say, well, some media predicts treatment condition or that alcohol use predicts biological sex or whatever, right? We can't, there are certain things that we can reduce it, but not exaggerating for any model of reasonable complexity. And this isn't like finding some goofball model where we all point to it and laugh at how silly it is. Mm -hmm. Any reasonable model, we could have 20 or 40 or 60 equivalent models that are in some way or another consistent with theory. And that's just the price of the ticket to use SEM. And this focuses on SEM, but Greg, I like your comment. I mean, we all got this problem. Oh, yeah. Right? Is in the multiple regression model, that saturated X side where all of your predictors co-vary with all of those, make them mediators, make them double-headed arrows, bi-directional cause, throw an equality constraint, make some predictors, some correlated disturbances. They're all the same. Yep. You can even throw some latent stuff in there if you want. Oh, yeah. I want to give you a heads up about a change that I'm going to make on the podcast. Whoa. Uh, You're calling an audible right here? Oh, please. You did the whole outlier bell without even talking to me about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> we okay. checked collaboration at the door a long time ago. All right. You're going to find this a little ironic. I actually don't mm. like podcasts. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Other than Kai. Don't. <laughs> Am I allowed to use his name? <laughs> Do you want to talk about this now? I told you it was a moment of intellectual passion when I cried out his name when you and I were arguing. <laughs> I've listened to a few podcasts, okay. but I'm listening to one for you history buffs out there. There's a guy named Dan Carlin, and he has a podcast called Hardcore History, mm-hmm. and it is so awesome. Okay, this particular one is 16 hours on the Pacific Theater of World War II. All right, 16 hours. But the point is, and Uh why I want to do it, is he's got this gravel voice that he talks about. Mm -hmm. And so, and he uses these awesome colloquialisms. And so he'll say things like, They had little use for libraries or organized athletics. Many wore expert badges for proficiency in rifle, pistol, machine gun, and bayonet. So I'm going to try to start talking like that on the podcast, right? So the models that you hold so near and dear to your heart to confirm your precious theories turn out to have dozens, hundreds of alternatives. We know what they are. We know where they come from. But tell me, my friend, where do we go? (laughs) Can you do that every episode? No, because I'm going to have no voice left. That right there... I feel like a pack a day smoker after that one. Camel no filters. <laughs> How he does that for sixteen hours, I do not know. <laughs> That's it for me, man. If you could go ahead and wrap up the episode, I'm gonna go make a nice chamomile tea. All right. So you just said, where do we go from here? This is a great question, right? So on the one hand, this is part of the deal, right? Equivalent models is just part of the deal with regard to the science that we do. One of the things that I want to make clear is that it's not really just about structural equation models. And I mentioned that a little bit earlier. If we think about an exploratory factor analysis, we have the issue of rotational indeterminacy, that even if we have decided on a particular number of factors, the orientation of those factors, whether orthogonal or one of the many different oblique solutions that we could possibly have, that creates a series of what, of what you could argue are equivalent models. But it's also not just in this world. I don't remember if we addressed this before back when we were talking about mixture models in our Sir Mixture A Lot episode last year. Was that last year? I wouldn't know because I don't listen. <laughs> but there's also an equivalence between models that use continuous factors to explain what's going on and models that use mixtures to explain what's going on. Under certain configurations, you can actually generate one from the other, the set of parameters from one to the other. The idea of equivalent models even sort of transcends domains that we're accustomed to thinking about, maybe. And so we are stuck with the ones that we understand, where we can flip arrows and hook up disturbances and all of that, but it can even be broader than that. This is just the price we pay to do what we want to do with these models. And you're absolutely right, as we're focused on the SEM, but this generalizes to almost anything that we do. You were talking about the Sir Mixture A Lot episode is back in, I don't know, you were remember these better than me in the 50s was it gibson Mm -hmm. showed the relation between the factor model and latent profile analysis and how they're isomorphic exactly but make 
fundamentally different statements about the underlying population mechanism that gave rise to your sample data. We've been doing this the whole time. It's just only now are we becoming a little bit more cognizant of it. I mean, I have some ideas about how to address it, how I think a little bit about it in my own work, although none of them are a silver bullet. Ready? I won't do Greg Gravely episode. (laughs) Welcome to the next edition of Quantitude's Name that dissertation. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I think there's some pretty cool stuff that could be done here. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not a programming problem. It's not a combinatorial problem. But imagine if you could automate in some meaningful way in whatever your software package of choice is that you identify some temporal links where you can't go back in time. You mm-hmm. identify some restrictions where you can't predict biological sex or treatment condition. And using some criteria as part of standard output, you're given the 10 usual suspects Mm -hmm. on alternative models that you should consider. Make that an automated part. I think that would be a super interesting programming problem. But I think there's also lots of important future work that could be done to say, are there other pieces of information that would help us adjudicate in some way or another among these set of equivalent models? So what do you do? <laughs> Did you like that reflection? Uh, yeah. What do I do versus what do I know can be done? That's a bit of a tension, right? <laughs> and <laughs> the, we're back to parenting. Yeah. <laughs> the honest answer is I don't do much myself. And part of that mm-hmm. is because I tend to live in a much more methodological world than an applied world. But even in an applied world, I tend to make an assumption that the models that are eligible for consideration, whether they're alternative models, equivalent models, whatever, that they are on the table. Intellectually, as much as I know about all the different rules for generating equivalent models, I have to be honest and say that I don't pay them as much mind as I should. I sort of have assumed that theory has taken care of that along the way. I don't think that's a great assumption. At least I am aware of it. I know that many people come into my office when I say, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? There is that pause where they're like, uh, so the idea of equivalent models is something that kind of paralyzes people. But I do have things that I think about as strategies. I can list a few and see what you think about them. But I'll say exactly what you said. None really is going to be a silver bullet for this issue. This is this world. One strategy is that you might be able to incorporate additional variables into your model. Now, that sounds like it can create more headaches, but sometimes the incorporation of additional variables doesn't mess with the core set of relations that you're interested in, but the variable that you introduce might have a series of links that are defensible and others that are simply indefensible, and that can narrow down the space of equivalent models greatly with respect to the things that you are interested in. I can say those words and I understand the mathematics of it, but in terms of someone actually doing that in practice, I'd like to see some really good examples of it, but I know that that's a possibility. I like that one a lot. One of the biggest things we can do is study planning. If you're aware of this going into your study, can you bring in additional variables? Can you bring in design elements that would help limit, right? Is sometimes I think about for lack of a better way, right? Maybe it just goes back to being an undergrad at the University of Colorado is having the day after a party is a table is covered with empty beer bottles, (laughs) 
And those are all plausible models, alternative models, equivalent models. And John Stuart Mill says, dude, you got to take some of them bottles off the table, right? (laughs) And so what we do is we just start knocking bottles off the table. Now, we're never going to clear it where there's just one bottle left. But we can take a whole lot of bottles and clear it down to a smaller number. So mm-hmm. as you're saying, is, is bringing in additional variables. How that relates for me is this notion of strong over-identification. So there's a little bit of a literature on this is we all mm-hmm. aspire to be over-identified. We want to impose more restrictions on the parameter space than pieces of information that we observed in our sample. That's what degrees of freedom are. If you have a degree of freedom equal to one, you've imposed one restriction. Five is five restrictions. And we've established early on, this is a numerical evaluation of your personal courage. The more degrees of freedom you have, the more statements you are making Mm -hmm. about those restrictions. Well, you can have a strongly over-identified model where relative to your parameter space, you've imposed a lot of restrictions. And that, by definition, reduces the number of equivalent models that you have. But where do you pay the reaper? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the episode, which listeners was actually two days ago because Greg's computer crashed. And so right now we're doing the second part is just a few minutes ago, we talked about, oh, I did that gag and then I forgot what I was going to tie back to from earlier. Um Ah, got it. I'm back. Alternative models is the chi-square is comparing your hypothesized model to the saturated model. Well, (laughs) if you have strong over-identification, it's harder to establish adequate fit as an omnibus compared Mm -hmm. to the saturated. And so that's the balance, right? The more restrictions we impose, the fewer equivalent models we have. But the more restrictions we impose, the harder it is to attain an acceptable degree of fit with respect to your observed data. Well, this is something that people who tend to do what's currently labeled as causal inference, a lot of directed acyclic graph kinds of things, think about instrumental variables Mm. and the role that instrumental variables can play in trying to sort out different explanations. If we find a good instrument, good luck. If you find a good instrument and get it into your model, how can that narrow down the span of causal explanations that we have to be able to identify a particular link between things? So it's very clever, and I think it's an example of this. So that's one thing that I, at least I know intellectually, to talk about when faced with this situation. And I think your point is such a great one, and that is that thinking about this in the planning phase, not in some post hoc, oh, crap, is there something else we can throw in there? But thinking about what that key variable or those key variables are going to be that are going to help create a more restricted or a more over-identified space. I think that's a great one. For me, after that, it's all just sort of what you believe. For example, there's something called ICOMP, Information Complexity Criterion, something like that. I think it goes back to the 90s with Larry Williams and maybe some other folks in the business literature. The basic idea of an information complexity criterion, though, is that a model can be characterized in terms of two pieces of information. One has to do with the extent to which your model fits or actually misfits, and then something to do with how complex your model is. And we've 
narrowed down ways that we talk about model misfit. Often it's based on some test statistic like a chi-square or variations on that. And then there's the issue of, well, how do you characterize the complexity of the model? And it can be something as simple as degrees of freedom or numbers of parameters or variations on those with and without logarithms, with or without n. And you have a whole family of information criteria. But when you have equivalent models, what you find is that, well, my fit is the same, though, and my degrees of freedom or my number of parameters are the same and my sample size is the same. So how am I going to discern? And the answer is, well, you're not going to do it on the fit of the model. So what you would have to do is define complexity in some different way. And my recollection is that the ICOMP approach has to do with how intercorrelated the set of parameters are within your model. And a model with sets of parameters that are more highly intercorrelated, I think that is taken to mean that you have a more complex model, whereas sets of parameters whose estimates don't intercorrelate as strongly is taken to be a less complex model. So if I recall... These indices are a combination of those, and you try to use that information to choose what would be considered a model that has a more favorable balance of misfit and complexity. That's my recollection, too. I've not used these myself, but functionally, they're the off-diagonal of the asymptotic covariance matrix or the Fisher <laughs> information matrix. The diagonal has our standard errors on it, and the off-diagonal is this really weirdo thing of how do two parameter estimates co-vary with one another. Yes, I like that. I think it's interesting. There are other numerical values people have talked about in addition to complexity, looking at the total R-squared in all of your dependent variables Mm -hmm. uh, has been talked about a little bit on individual residuals. Just because the model implied covariance matrices are the same doesn't mean that the individual residuals are the same. And so there's some interest there. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, there's really not very much you can do numerically to distinguish between these. And that's the whole thing that started this, right? Is they're numerically Mm -hmm. isomorphic. To me, I feel like there are a handful of things to know going in. As one is simply recognize this exists. And so when we talk about model confirmation, model replication, that the final model that we end up with is a representative of a set of models Mm -hmm. that vary in degree as to plausibility or alternative mechanisms, but you gotta know that these things exist when you're thinking about your model late at night or when you're presenting it to the reader. Again, that line that comes up with Lee and Hirschberger is the support of your hypothesized model is limited by the extent to which you have support for the entire set of equivalent models. And then it becomes like, okay, so what do you do with that? Well, I think about like a general triplet and different authors. I'm not generating this myself. This is drawing from, again, some of Leon Hirschberger's work, Stezel's work. McCallum and colleagues have a nice paper on this in 1993, I think, Psych Bowl. You have kind of three options. I'm a counter and I like thinking about what do you do. One is you just do business like almost all of us do including Mm -hmm. myself, which is you just retain your hypothesized model as if that's the only model. And maybe you say that this is one representation, but you don't do anything meaningful with it. The second option is you identify a set of equivalent models and identify the subset of those 
that are equally plausible to your hypothesized model. So you don't have to do a walk of shame and you have 38 <laughs> equivalent models that fall into the focal block, right? The trouble with Tribble's problem is maybe out of the set of equivalent models, maybe there are three that are theoretically plausible that you should consider. And maybe you conclude on those three. The third option that I kind of like, I don't agree with, but I like it, but it's the kind of like, we report, you decide, you know, whatever news. Is that Fox News? Oh, God, I hope not. (laughs) One of my favorite pictures of my daughters are on our mandatory New York City trip, and it's them flipping off the Fox News headquarters. (laughs) I think I sent you a picture of that. Oh, yes, you did. (laughs) But it is that you're going to be agnostic, Mm -hmm. that you are an objective reporter, And that you have a hypothesized model for the reasons that you do, but that you're going to identify 10 plausible alternatives. You're going to list them out, and you're not going to make a judgment about Mm -hmm. those. There's an argument that can be made for that. We report, you decide. I don't agree with that, Mm -hmm. because I'm not going to spend 40 minutes sitting on my couch with a cat sitting on my head reading a paper and then not have you, who are a content expert, tell me which one I should rank first. But it's an option. I like the looking ahead version that we acknowledge that there are some competing equivalent models and we can't adjudicate among them. But what might be the next steps to do? If So if we weren't able to do it in this study, are there ways that we can design the next study, either in terms of gathering variables or in terms of the actual experimental design that we do that would help to sort among these. I would really like to see the authors lay out the next step as opposed to us just sort of walking around in this hall of mirrors for the rest of our life, making a decision about where the actual door is to get out of it. And like everything, it's one more bean in the pile to collect repeated measures data. Mm -hmm. This by no means solves the problem. And indeed, it gives you a couple of new problems, Mm -hmm. but at least you can't go back in time. Right. If you think about it as the beer bottle problem, all of those empty Coors Light cans, that Coors Light doesn't even come in bottles, the cans (laughs) will have the beer can problem. Yeah, yeah. Let's just leave it at, I didn't study a lot in college. You can at least go to the table that a severely hungover John Stuart Mill has his feet propped up and he's trying to relight a cigarette that he found floating in a glass. You can at least go up and say, hey, Johnny, I can take off all the beer cans that go back in time because that's not plausible. So it's all about reducing plausibility, right? That's mm-hmm. the motivation here. There are 25 ways from Friday why longitudinal data is beneficial. And a big one is it knocks mm-hmm. a couple of cans off the table. Because the future can't influence the past, right? Tell me why you paused in saying that. There are a lot, there are a lot of Star Trek episodes. <laughs> And even Harry Potter, quite honestly, I mean, in Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry knew that he could cast a Patronus because he had seen himself do that in the future. Expecto Patronum! So one way to think about all the things that we've been talking about today has to do with ways that you can rearrange the elements that you're dealing with in your theory and come up with a competing explanation that is actually equivalent. And that brings me back to the anagrams that we started with. So I went to an anagram solver and put your name into it, but I got 
two. I, I don't know what I'm, you think about this. So, <laughs> I don't know what, I'm, I, my heart rate just went up a little really, bit. Really? Okay. So if we rearrange the letters in Patrick Curran, we get I ran truck crap. I don't know what it means. The other one with a variation on spelling is a current prick. (laughs) (laughs) That, my friends, is an equivalent model. I got nothing on that. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for your time. And we will talk to you next week. Take care, everybody. Hey, couponers, don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they usually go to get podcasts to listen to when they want to take a break from hilarious pet videos on YouTube. Can you believe that dog tore up the pillow while the family was away? And now he looks so guilty. That's so funny. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, you can get Cool Kid Quantitude merch on redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donorschoose.org to help support remote access and low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude. We are to podcasts what carpenter ants are to podcasts. Today's episode was sponsored by The Jangle Fallacy, which you would probably understand better if you had more grit or hardiness or perseverance or is it resilience? And by graph theory, path models just sound so much cooler when instead of variables and paths, you call them nodes and edges. Ooh, it's like the future. And finally, by minimum wage. No matter what amount you think it should be, it's still more than any of us gets for doing academic journal reviews. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>